0: You can sign up for the podcast feed there, and the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash show. All right, you guys, introducing William Hartung, director of the Arms and Security Program at the Center for International Policy and author of Inside the ICBM Lobby. And uh, this is a press release, it's a very informative one, at the Institute for Public Accuracy. That's accuracy.org. How the ICBM lobby is threatening Armageddon. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing?
1: Good, good. Thanks for having me again.
0: Uh, Happy to have you here. This is one of the goofiest, ironical, crazy things of our times is that there's such a thing at all as the ICBM lobby. And I know I'm a broken record on this, but I think I speak for regular people when I say that. He just sort of maybe never thought about it, or maybe it just goes without saying that somehow the military decides how many nukes they need, and then they make them or order them or something. And it just doesn't really come up that you have businessmen who are trying to get rid of some H-bombs here who will do anything that they can to bribe the Congress to make sure that they can keep selling to their captive market, the Energy Department and the Pentagon. To uh, in preparation for the destruction of all of humankind as long as they can make a quick buck right now, just the same as any other racket, just the same as a company that sells tanks or, you know, shoelaces or combat boots or whatever it is to the military. Uh, We have an ICBM lobby that you say here is threatening Armageddon. So please do tell, sir.
1: Well, you know, as you're pointing out, there's a lot at stake here it's it's not about like overcharging for boots. and um, the the ICBM is particularly dangerous. I mean, you know all nukes are dangerous, but because the President has a few minutes to decide whether to launch them in a crisis, uh, there's a danger of an accidental nuclear war due to a false alarm. And there have been false alarms before. So if we were going to get the nuclear problem under control, the first thing you'd want to do is get rid of ICBMs. And yet, you've got senators from the states where the ICBM bases are, or where they do development work on the ICBM, who've blocked almost every single attempt to spend less on ICBMs, to reduce the numbers, to even study alternatives. At the end of the, uh, when they negotiated the New START Treaty, they got rid of 50 of them. There's 400 left. So they said, well, let's destroy those 50 silos. The lobby said, oh no. Maybe we'll need them in the future if we rebuild up again. So literally any little change that you might think about, this lobby, which is senators from relatively small states, Wyoming, North Dakota, uh, Montana, and Utah, have had kind of a stranglehold on uh, policy on this, uh, backed up, of course, by the corporations. Uh, Northrop Grumman has a $13 billion plus no-bid contract to build a new ICBM. It's not bad enough we have them in the ground, but now they want to spend over $250 billion building and operating a whole new one, which, of course, in wonderful Pentagon parlance, they call the ground-based strategic deterrent, which doesn't sound so bad. like not like something that's going to end life as we know it, Uh, but that wouldn't be a good name, the missile to end life as we know it. So they stuck with GBSD as their acronym. Um, But anyway, yes, so this is, I think, because of what's at stake, the fact that a relatively small number of senators and corporations are keeping us down this road, uh, I think is one of the most dangerous and outrageous examples of influence peddling uh, that we have.
0: Yeah, it's completely crazy. And now, um, just off the top of your head, can I ask you? Do you know how many megatons are we talking about in the missiles that you know we're discussing here in these these Minutemen, for example?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I know it's like many, many multiples of the uh, su- the power of the bombs that killed a few hundred thousand at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So it's 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 huge, huge uh, explosive power. And of course, they
0: uh, are these. They have, do you know if these yeah. have uh, multiple reentry vehicles? Uh, you know, per missile. Yes, they that's do. the ones we're talking about here, right? Are the big ones, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So you
0: could have a, one rocket that actually takes out four or five cities, something like that. More, maybe exactly.
1: More. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, the U S has, um, 1,550 deployed nuclear weapons and about four or 5,000 in the active stockpile. So, you know, a handful of those, uh, if you had an exchange of even a hundred of those thousands and thousands, you would probably end life on the planet because you'd, interfere with heat getting in, you'd have famines, you'd have all kinds of horrific consequences. So uh, all this talk about, well, we need more because China's building a few missiles or you know we, we don't have enough to, to take out their nuclear weapons in a conflict. Once you start using nuclear weapons, essentially life is over. And so a lot of the arguments used in Washington for why we need a tweak here, a more reliable weapon there or a different capacity here um, really is irrelevant to our survival. In fact, uh, it's a counter to our survival.
0: Yeah. Hey, y'all, check out our great stuff at libertarianinstitute.org books. First of all, we've published No Quarter, the ravings of William Norman Grigg, our institute's late and great co-founder. He was the very best one of us, our whole movement, I mean. And No Quarter will leave his mark on you, no question. Which brings us to the works of our other co-founder, the legendary libertarian thinker and writer Sheldon Richman. We've published two collections of his great essays, Coming to Palestine and What Social Animals Owe to Each Other. Both are instant classics. I'm proud to say that Coming to Palestine is surely the definitive libertarian take on Israel's occupation of the Palestinians. And Social Animals certainly ranks with the very best writings on libertarian ethics, economics, and everything else. You'll absolutely love it. Then there's me. I've written two books, Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've also published a collection of the transcripts of all of my interviews of the heroic Dr. Ron Paul, 29 of them, plus a speech by me about how much I love the guy. It's called... The Great Ron Paul. You can find all of these at libertarianinstitute.org/books. Well, you're such a hippie. How could anyone be opposed to uh, the power to destroy a city in one shot? After all, as Bill Kristol might say, it's kept the peace for the last seventy-five years. Uh, never mind the Koreans and the Vietnamese and the Iraqis and whatever people like that don't count. But between the major powers we haven't had major wars because atom bombs are too big to use. And so thank goodness,
1: everything's great.
0: What do you say to that?
1: Yeah, I think it does. You know, it makes the country think twice about having an all out war with another nuclear armed power. Uh, But as you said, uh, you know, most of the wars have been in States, not only that don't have um, nuclear forces, but don't have major conventional forces either. Uh, and so uh, there's been great suffering under this sort of umbrella of what they call deterrence. And deterrence is not, um, you know, it's it's not guaranteed. Depends who's got their finger on the button. Depends on other developments. You've got now all this kind of clamoring for better war plans against China. Uh, well, what if they overreach? I mean, China's a nuclear armed power. Uh, and yet they're making all these plans for striking deep into Chinese territory and naval battle over Taiwan and all these things that kind of imply that we would, and in effect, in the national defense strategy, they're saying, well, we have to be able to win a war with Russia or China. What on earth does that mean? When you've got nuclear armed powers, how do you win a war against somebody that can destroy your society, just as you can destroy theirs? So yeah. um, it's, you know, there, there's been I think it has shifted the focus of conflict away from great power conflict towards, uh, you know, fighting in the rest of the world to the detriment of millions and millions of people. Um, But I think even that notion that it's sort of going to hold the peace doesn't, is not guaranteed and we're in dangerous waters at the moment because of the demonization of China. Right. Yeah. I mean, you look at the past 75 years,
0: well, that's nothing, right? That's a blink of an eye. So. The fact that mutually assured destruction has worked so far is no guarantee at all. And boy, what a failure if it ever fails. You're talking about losing cities at a minimum, maybe losing entire civilizations off of the face of the earth, setting humanity back a thousand years or some crazy thing. Yeah, it's basically people starving from famine.
1: It's it's a risk that's not worth taking at any level, you know.
0: Yeah, man. Um, All right. Now uh so i think part of the context here though is that there's pressure to get rid of these minutemen right that some reasonable people inside the military establishment even think that you know we could just rely on our subs and air power and we don't really need the nuclear sponge in the middle of the country that's the other crazy ironical thing about all this is all these minutemen are there mostly to distract Soviet or Russian forces that they have to waste all their nukes nuking the middle of the country which is supposed to somehow spare the coasts which is ridiculous anyway we'd lose New York and DC and LA and San Francisco in a nuclear war with Russia anyway but um there's this nuclear sponge idea I guess there's the reason we're talking about this is some people are objecting to that and saying maybe we could get rid of these things and so you're really telling the story of the lobby pushing back and say no, you can't do that. We gotta keep these, no matter what. In fact,
1: replace them with brand new ones, et cetera, and on. Yeah, yeah, and it, as too often happens, uh, people from the military and the Pentagon don't really tell you what they think until they get out of office. Um, you know, they're not in there necessarily fighting for this when they've got more power to to do something about it. But nonetheless, there's a whole long list of. Retired generals, heads of the Strategic Command, Uh, former Clinton administration, Defense Secretary William Perry has been particularly vocal about getting rid of ICBMs. Uh, Dan Ellsberg now is uh, speaking out as this being the most, you know, the biggest nuclear danger. Uh, He just did a piece with Norman Solomon for The Nation that sort of makes that case. Um, So there's, there's a lot of arguments and a lot of people who know their way around this issue saying we don't need these things um but not enough people on the inside and of course uh their decision making isn't always based on what makes us safer it's like well we don't want to lose a senate seat in montana or we yeah. um you know we don't want to lose these campaign contributions or we don't want to be perceived as weak that that sort of blanket argument for spending more and more on the military yeah. Um, I always so love that line. Get...
0: We're afraid that someone will call us cowards. Yeah, that would be a real problem.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's like if you really had the courage, of your convictions, that wouldn't bother you. Right. You know, if you're it's such ridiculous. a tough guy, stand up for what you believe in. You know? Yeah.
0: Um, now, here's the thing. I'm sure you probably saw this um, when they're talking about these uh, given these nuclear submarines, nuclear powered, not nuclear weapons subs, but nuclear-powered submarines to the Australians. I was reading a thing. I might have the date wrong here, but I don't think so. I'm pretty sure they said, listen, the time it's going to take to transfer this technology to the Australians, prepare the infrastructure and everything, train up all their people on it to be able to use it right, we're talking 2050. And it's just all baked in there unsaid, is that we do not foresee an era of diplomacy with Russia and China. We foresee the status quo holding, if we're lucky, we'll still have a nuclear standoff with these two major nuclear weapons powers into the indefinite future. And that's the yeah. framework that it's they look at everything.
1: The new ICBM would last till 2075 if they build it. So it's, it's sort of like, yeah, this is, this is supposed to be in perpetuity in their view, and and using that time to actually do arms control or disarmament or change the calculus or uh, have a diplomatic opening to any of these countries is not even in the scenario, you know.
0: Yeah, it's crazy. All right. Now, listen, uh, everybody, you can find I'm not sure how to get to it from the front page of the Center for International Policy, but just Google this up, everybody. It's inside the ICBM lobby. Special Interests or the National Interest? And uh, it's by the great Bill Hartung. It's here at the Center for International Policy. And you find this great press release that also links to uh, Ellsberg's article in The Nation at the uh, Institute for Public Accuracy. That's accuracy.org. And uh, I know you got to go, but I really appreciate you making a little bit of time for us here today, Bill.
1: Oh, yeah. Always great to talk. All
0: right, you guys. That's the great William Hartung. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, APSradio.com, Antiwar.com,
1: ScottHorton.org, and LibertarianInstitute.org.